0: Proverbs teach us to guard our hearts with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. As you think about John writing his gospel, he's likely in the last decade of his life, an old man looking back to his early days in his 20s probably, maybe even as young as late teens, and looking back a life lived for Jesus, and about to head home to glory, and very concerned about passing on to the next generation the truth of the gospel. You know, you could look at the first century as it crossed over into the second, and you could well ask the question, as the apostles are dying out, and John's the last surviving one, of whether Christianity would survive at all. And you have to to believe that as John looked back over his life, he was not regretting how he lived it. You know, sometimes when you, it's, it's said it's, it's rare to see a young, young man who's humble and an old man that's content. Um, and, and John, looking back, knew that he had given his life to something that really mattered. And he also had seen, you know, multiple tragedies among the, the people of God, how important it is that our hearts cry out to the Lord Um, I love the lines, the choir saying, your light shines when all else fades. Your glory goes beyond all fame. You think about all the things that people live for, but it's over in a moment. It's gone. It's like, you know, a a dream. It's like um, a vapor in the wind. And to know that you've actually lived for Jesus, so, so critical. Know that you actually belong to him. The final hours that Jesus spent with the disciples in the upper room, the night that He was betrayed, were sacred and they were unforgettable. And John has given us the privilege of reading the record of those hours. It gives us some of the greatest instruction, really, of all time. But not everyone there that night benefited from what Jesus did and said. Our passage this morning starts with the alarming words, I am not speaking of all of you. Judas would throw away his very soul this night. And John records those moments leading up to Satan taking full control of Judas, never to let him free again. Judas had left the door of his heart open to evil. Satan entered in and locked the door behind him. So I've called our study this morning Devil's Door. Beginning in verse 18 of John 13, we read these words. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it takes place, you may believe. When it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives the One who sent Me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. One of His disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to Him to ask Jesus of whom He was speaking. Some of them thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, um, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. In these verses, we see three themes. First, that of divine certainty, divine certainty in verses 18 and 20. Divine certainty in terms of what Jesus already knew and had known all along, seeing right down into the souls of all the men that He had chosen, and also divine certainty in terms of what the Scriptures had predicted. In verses 21 to 26, we're introduced to how troubling the betrayal of Judas was, even to Jesus. Troubling betrayal. It's troubling to us, particularly as we trace how this developed in Judas' heart. And then finally, in verses 27 to 30, we see the scene ending with satanic dominion, Satan entering into Judas and taking full control. It's a dark passage. It's well that it's set at night, but it's a passage that that God has seen fit to record for us because of the warning it is to those who gather in His name, That Not everyone who gathers in his name, not everyone that's among those closest to Jesus actually belongs to Jesus. Not everyone's heart actually is submitted to the Lord and trusting in him. And Judas is that kind of warning. If there could be a Judas among the apostles of Jesus, then certainly we would not be surprised, we should not be surprised when there are those of our friends or our family or our church That turn away from Jesus. So, in verses 18 to 20, first consider with me divine certainty, because this is meant to strengthen our faith. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Spirit will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it take place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. So there's a reason that Jesus is bringing this up and it is so that we can come to faith. The complete knowledge of Jesus. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus knew completely from the start every one of the men that he had chosen to follow him, even Judas the traitor. In fact, he could well say he knew them better than they knew themselves, just as he knows us better than we know ourselves. We read clear back in John 6 as there are many that were turning away from the Lord because of the hard things He was saying, and Peter is avowing, to whom else shall we go? We find reference to Judas as one whom Jesus has chosen. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter had answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Really, his response to the difficulty they were facing. You know, when you face those times and you can't figure out what God is doing and and you're perplexed about what God is saying and you don't have the answers to what uh, you feel strongly about, it's important for you to come down to this bedrock. Jesus has the words to eternal life. And where else are you going to go? You can reject Jesus, but you don't have another good alternative. Because he's the only one that can give us eternal life. Well, Jesus answered them, Did not I choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So be careful. I know that the word choose, you might think immediately of like the doctrine of election. Well, choose is a common word. Okay? So Jesus chose these disciples. It doesn't mean that he chose all of them to salvation. It means he chose them to be his disciples. Among them was Judas. Okay? He was chosen to serve alongside the other disciples there, but Jesus knew exactly who he was. Jesus knew not only who he was, Jesus knew what he would be and what he would do. He has divine insight into the very core of every human being. His thoughts, His desires, His character, only God has this level of insight. It's really a call for us to trust Jesus, for He knows us better than anyone does. We find the same kind of information early in John, in John 2, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in His name, and that's characteristically the way John describes those who are actually trusting in Jesus. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. So they trusted him at a certain level, perhaps that he was the promised one, but, but not at a level of actually saving faith because he didn't entrust himself to them. He knew them, he knew what was actually going on. Jesus is not impressed. Um, by how many hands have been raised and how many people walked the aisle or how many people sign in the dotted line to join the local church. Jesus knows who we actually are. Jesus knows what's actually going on. And that was the case with those who were impressed by his miracles. He needed Jesus on his part to not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. We all see, you know, we know people at different levels. Some people we know better than others. We, we get our read, we look in their eyes, we see uh, what they do. We, we feel like we have a, an understanding of, of who some people are. But, but ultimately, we're, we're only looking at the, the surface uh, of who a person actually is. Uh, God knows who a person actually is. Jesus knows you better than you even know yourself. And, and you know, it, it only makes sense that he would. I mean, haven't you ever been confused? Haven't you ever had times where you're not, you're not sure what to do? You're not sure how you feel? In fact, you've probably even said that. I'm not even sure how to feel about this. You don't, you don't know always what's going on, and you come before the Lord, and you, that's why the psalmist will say, you know, search me and try me, see if there's any wicked way in me, and, you know, let the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, because we can self-deceive ourselves, and that's natural to us. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, incurably sick. You know, King James would use the word wicked, but it's the idea of, of, the, of the wickedness like a wicked wound, a nasty wound. We are incurably sick. Who can understand it? You now, Speaking of our sin nature, And then we have this answer, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And there we get some kind of insight. If you want to know who a person is, what are the paths he characteristically walks? What are the deeds that she characteristically does? That gives you more insight than just some profession of faith. So it's a a comfort as well as a, a warning that Jesus knows you. No, people are going to misunderstand you. Your husband or your wife, they're going to, they're going to misunderstand you. Your kids are going to misunderstand you. Your parents are going to misunderstand you. You're going to misunderstand yourself, but Jesus knows where you actually are. Jesus knows what your real motives were, even if it came off badly. And so that's a comfort that he, he knows what you're actually struggling with. He knows what you're actually trying to do. But it's also a warning, because you can fool everybody else on the planet. You can even fool yourself, but you can't fool him because Jesus knows exactly who you are. So you have this certainty of knowledge that Jesus has toward us that, that really calls us toward faith in Him. You can trust a God like this. I mean, who? nobody in the planet knows you the way He knows you. You can trust Him. And then you also have this certain fulfillment of Scripture. He says, but the Scriptures will be fulfilled. And he quotes from... Psalm 41, 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You know, David had those that betrayed him. Um, you know, you read a lot of the Psalms, and it's, it's clear that he's in a position of leadership. It's clear that there are a lot of people vying um, to, to destroy him, to lie about him. Even his own son Absalom uh, turns against him and leads in a direction and so David knew what it was like to be betrayed, and um, it's hard, and it was hard for Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples, though, about the betrayal ahead of time to strengthen their faith, that you may believe that I am he. When people defect, you know, people that we've, we've known and trusted and even admired It it can shake our faith. It's it's unnerving. It rattles us. And Jesus didn't want the disciples to be rattled that one of the 12 would actually turn traitor against Jesus. That he didn't want them to think that somehow this was all going um, because of that betrayal that that God's plan was being derailed. He didn't want them to think that now maybe Jesus wasn't actually the Messiah. Instead, he wanted them to know that that this was known not only by Jesus, but this was foreseen by the Scriptures themselves that predicted the coming Messiah. That God will use this argument of predictive prophecy um, in Isaiah 45 and many other places to demonstrate that he's the only God and the only Savior to whom we can turn. His accurate prediction of the future underscores not only that God is all-knowing, but that he's also all-powerful when he predicts something He has the power to make it happen. Who Jesus proved himself to be by his words and his works and the supernatural knowledge, combined with what the scriptures say in predicting what would happen, lead us to faith in Jesus as the Messiah that God has sent to save us. So the very thing that could derail the disciples, Jesus is getting ahead of that and, and he's letting them know that both he and the Scriptures foresaw this and that their faith can remain tethered to him and they'll be okay. The reliability of Christ and his word is the basis for the gospel that we proclaim to all the world. If Christ and his word are not reliable, we have no gospel to preach. There is no good news because Christ is a liar And God's words are lies. And therefore, anything that they promise, we can't rely on. But since they are utterly trustworthy, we go forth to all the world with the good news, knowing that others can fully trust its reliability. It is backed by God Himself, a God who sees right down to the depths of our souls, a God who sees to the end of human history and predicts what will happen and indeed controls what will happen. So Jesus says in John 13, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So here's how it works. You're receiving in faith the message of those that Jesus sends, the apostolic message, the gospel. Well, when you do that, you're receiving Jesus, And Jesus is the one that God the Father sent. So you're also receiving God the Father. They all three go together. You reject the apostolic testimony, you reject Jesus. You reject Jesus, you reject God. They're all together. So the opposite is also true. If you reject the apostolic message of those Jesus commissioned to give the gospel to all the world, then you reject Jesus who sent them, you reject God who sent Jesus. It's not just theoretical, it is personal. There is no neutral position. You know a lot of times we get into the debates about atheism and agnosticism and debating this doctrine and that doctrine and, and kind of the gotcha kinds of things. It, it, it's not about just an intellectual debate. It's about a person. It's about. God, who made heaven and earth. It's about his son, whom he sent to rescue us. It's about his message, his revelation, things we can never know except that he revealed it, being given. Eyewitness testimony, first hand testimony to what God said and what God did, preserved for us and proclaimed to the world. If you reject that, you reject God. And you have no good alternative. And it is personal. You're rejecting Peter and Paul and Matthew and Luke and Mark and Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses. And you're rejecting Jesus. And you're rejecting God the Father. And you're rejecting the Holy Spirit whom they've sent to infect the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the question comes to us is, in what ways has the supernatural power of Jesus brought to life your own faith in Him? I mean, have you ever come to a point in your life where you knew that God was just talking to you, that that He knows you, that He was calling you to trust Him, Do you you remember what it feels like for God to be at work in your soul? And how recently have you experienced that? And in what ways has the proven reliability of the Scriptures led you to faith in Christ? You know, some people say, well, I've got my doubts, so they stop reading the Bible. Well, that's a dumb policy. Like, I don't know anything about this. I'm not sure whether it's true, so I'm not going to research it from the firsthand testimony look if you're struggling with doubt the last thing you should do is set your Bible aside you need to dig in deeper you need to let those words say what they say you need to grapple with the very words of God not ignore them if you ignore them I'm not convinced you're actually sincere in your disregard of them because you're not giving them a fair trial if you ignore all the evidence and then you say there is none that's hardly an argument Okay, so So get into the Scriptures, and what about your life could suggest that you have resisted the unique power of Jesus and that you have resisted the clear prophetic testimony of God's Word? I mean, many, many here this morning would would claim, like Judas, to be following Jesus, but are there things in your life that actually are contradictory to that? Because we don't want to leave those things unattended. And that leads us to 21 to 26, troubling betrayal. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Judas had become a master of faking devotion to Jesus. When Jesus announced that one of his disciples would betray him, not one of the disciples suspected that Judas could be the one. Even when he leaves the group, they think he's just running an errand for Jesus. But Jesus has known from the start that that Judas would turn traitor, just as the Scriptures had foretold. But that doesn't mean he didn't care and that it didn't hurt because of it. He was deeply affected by the defection of Judas. His soul was troubled. his own testimony, like the spiritual and emotional turmoil that Zacharias, father of John the Baptist, experienced when Gabriel suddenly appeared to him in the temple, or the terror that the disciples experienced on the stormy sea when Jesus came walking to them on the water, and they thought it was a phantom, or the word that's used for Jesus' anguish at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus was troubled. He's emotionally hurting. Judas had repeated opportunity to repent. And on this very night, he has occasion to do so. Imagine the impact of Jesus declaring in front of the group that one of them would betray him. That after washing the feet of every one of the 12. And then the gesture of friendship and giving Judas a morsel dipped in the sauce. You wonder if Judas could even look Jesus in the eye, knowing that Jesus knew exactly what Judas was about to do. We know from John twenty-one twenty that John himself was the one next to Jesus. He was the one Peter motioned to. So once Judas took the morsel of food Jesus offered, John knew as well as Jesus that Judas was the traitor, possibly Peter. In short time, the very name Judas would become synonymous with being a traitor. Jesus said it best, as recorded in Matthew 26, the Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So what happens when you are suddenly aware your sin is known? Ever had that happen to you? And what happens when God shows you kindness despite your sin? Both of those should lead you to repentance. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Sometimes we let a sin fester and get control of our lives, and we think, well, it must be okay because God hasn't zapped me yet. Well, the fact that God hasn't brought you into judgment yet doesn't mean that it's any less a sin. It just means that God is being gracious to you. He's giving you time. He's showing you kindness. You know, there's nothing so humbling as somebody that that you, you feel badly toward showing you kindness, doing something Really nice. It it brings conviction to your heart. Judas was among the most privileged human beings in all of human history. He had the privilege of traveling close to Jesus, the Messiah, God the Son in the flesh, for over three years, going through intensive training with the rest of the apostles. Judas heard God Himself preach. Judas had seen Jesus do miracles, including raising the dead. And Judas had himself preached and done miracles. But the mission of Jesus was turning out to be very different from what Judas thought the Messiah's kingdom would be like. It was not going to be a ticket to advancing his career, to gaining popularity and power. It was looking more and more like washing dirty feet like slave labor. And it threatened to cost the disciples everything, including life itself. And Judas decided he wanted nothing to do with it. So what about your own life do you think could be bringing sorrow to the heart of Jesus? Let's put it at a very personal level. Let's not leave it academic and theoretical. What, what about your own life, do you think could be bringing sorrow to the heart of Jesus? And, and when have you experienced the alarm of having a sin in your life confronted in some way? And, and God has just all kinds of ways of doing it. Sometimes nobody else knows but you. that It's like God pulls back the cover and says, I know exactly what you're doing and exactly where you're going, and you better deal with it before it's too late. And you kind of have these shockwaves and go, whoa, I've I've got to deal with this. I can't let this keep going on. And when have you experienced gracious kindness from God even while you are harboring some known evil in your heart? Since the best time to repent is the moment you know you're in the wrong, what do you know you need to repent from and confess? Right now, before it's too late. And maybe even as we've talked, maybe there are things that are coming to mind and that the Spirit of God is like working on your heart. Why don't don't we take 30 seconds right now, if, if God has confronted something in your life, let's just take 30 seconds, all of us bow our heads, close our eyes, and let's deal with it right now, okay? Let's talk to God about it. Let's put it in front of Him. Dear God, you know us. You've searched us. There's nowhere we can go where you are not. We can't run from you. We can't hide from you. And so, God, we want to lay our hearts out before you to, to clean up any mess that's there. Lord, let no sin or vice remain that would rule over us that would turn our hearts away from You. Lord, restore us to the joy of Your salvation. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, in verses 27 to 30, we see satanic dominion. Then after he had taken the marshal, that is, Judas had taken it, Satan entered into him. <laughs> Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. John 13, 2, already noted that Satan had put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. This is where it ended up. So, what do you do when Satan suggests to your heart what you know is wrong? Now, you know, when he makes those suggestions, he knows how to to tempt us in line with what we already have an appetite for. So, it's not like you're off the hook. The devil made me do it. We're all drawn away of our own lust and enticed, okay? But, But we do know when we're being drawn, Satan supercharges that. So, what has Satan suggested to your heart that you know is wrong? Judas kept mulling it over, tucked away in his heart. Its poison progressed to the point that finally Satan took complete control of him. The reality is that we are slaves to whomever we obey. Refusal to obey God is giving yourself over to God's adversary, Satan, because that's the way he thinks. Many resist yielding to the authority of God while failing to consider how terrible the tyranny of Satan is. They are self-deceived in thinking they are master of their fate. Many think they're in control when they hold on to their sin rather than repenting. Not so. They only deepen their slavery to sin. Sin always costs you more than you want to pay and takes you further than you want to go. Back in the early history of humanity, God gave this warning to Cain. Remember, Cain's line was that worldly line that turned away from the Lord. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching, crouching like a wild animal at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain sloughed off God's warning. He ended up murdering his brother. And became a fugitive. Well, when Judas leaves, everyone but John and possibly Peter thinks that Judas is leaving to do some good deed, but Satan has entered into him and now has full control. Judas left the door open too long, and now the day of opportunity is gone forever. Do not think that the day of opportunity leaves only at the day of a person's death. It can come well before that, as it did in Judas' case. The episode ends with the haunting words, and it was night. Not just the sun had gone down in the material world, but that spiritual darkness now reigned. Judas was tangled up in a dark conspiracy of evil, human and satanic, to destroy Jesus the greatest crime of all human history. But never forget what Jesus declared in John 10, that no one takes his life from him, that he lays it down willingly and has full authority to take it up again. Or as John 1, 5 puts it, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It was night, but the morning was coming and the light would still shine. Jesus would not fail to accomplish his saving mission. Judas, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the temple guard, the Roman soldiers, and Satan himself could not thwart God's redemptive plan, but would instead help bring it to pass. That's why God sits in the heavens and laughs at his enemies. God is stronger than evil. Light dispels darkness. Life seizes victory from the very jaws of death. Indeed, even death will one day be destroyed. It's a sobering passage, but it's been played out time and time again in human history, clear to our own time. In fact, you may know persons that ended up letting Satan take full control of their lives. Can you think of them? It's hard to think about those people, but, but let it be a warning like Judas is a warning to us. And judging from the way you are living your life, who is your true master? By the way, it's not you. It's not you. If you look at your ways, if you look at your deeds, if you consider the desires of your heart, who is your master? And then... Whom do you want to serve? You know, ultimately you get what you want. Whom do you want to serve, Satan or Christ? And what thoughts, words, actions, and patterns will you commit to pursue today in light of that choice? If you're going to serve Satan, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. Go for it. But you are heading into night. You are heading into darkness. You are heading into judgment. But if you want to pursue Christ, the lover of your soul, the Savior of the world, then pursue Him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Stop wavering. Stop leaving the devil's door open and pursue Christ the Son. Have you opened your heart to Jesus? Have you bowed the knee to Him in faith? Are you following Him as your Savior and Lord? Or has something or someone else taken His rightful place? Beware the devil's door. Divine certainty, troubling betrayal, satanic dominion, this account, calls us to repent and come to Jesus and trust Him. Let's pray. God, this is such a sobering passage, and yet we want to let its full impact take hold of us in our hearts, where we don't know ourselves completely. And there are times that we're we're humiliated and, and we're alarmed by the level of defection that we find in our own hearts. We're prone to wander and to leave the God we love. And so, God, I pray that you would purge our hearts and purify us, that we might follow hard after the Lord Jesus. Lord, it grieves us. It makes us weep when people turn away who have heard the words of Christ. And have read of his deeds, Lord, it troubles our heart. Lord, we pray that you would, you might continue to appeal to them just as you did to Judas that night. And Lord, I pray that even this day in this company, there would be those who trust in Jesus fully for the salvation of their souls. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.